All right. If you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Father, how grateful we are to be in this building today. How grateful we are to be able to worship the King who loves us, to worship the one who saved us, who worship the one who set us free. We are thankful today for the cross. We are thankful today for the resurrection. We are grateful, Lord, that you do not leave us alone. You do not leave us in our darkness. But, Lord, you found us and brought us to your light. And so we celebrate that here this morning, that you have turned our seas into highways. And that, Lord, you make a difference in our lives. So we worship you and we thank you for that. And now, Lord, as we get into your word, we ask that you would open up our understanding. That we might be able to comprehend what you are saying to us today. Apply it to our lives and bring glory to your name. And we give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Everybody says, Amen. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. We've been through this chapter up to verse 14 uh, for the last three weeks. This will be the last sermon from Colossians chapter 3. If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience, in the which you also walked some time when you lived in them. But now you also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man, with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. We've been talking over the last few weeks about resurrection people. Uh, as you know, we are, we are Easter people. As Christians, we are Easter people. Everything that we are uh, and everything that we are as a people, everything that we are becoming revolves around the reality of what happened at the cross and the resurrection. Salvation is not possible without the cross. And Christianity itself does not even exist without the resurrection. Paul said, if Christ is not risen, then we are still dead in our sins. So if Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain and we are still in our sins. But the good news of the gospel is that not only did Jesus die for our sins, but he rose again on the third great day and defeated sin, death, hell, and Satan himself. Jesus invites us to join him into this victory by following him. That as dad said this morning, because he wears the victor's crown and we are in Christ, he invites us into his victory. He makes his victory our victory. He makes the fact that he overcame the fact that we overcome because we are in Christ. And this is what it means to be a born again Christian. This is what it means to be resurrection People. Now, we've been discussing, again, Colossians 3 for the last three weeks. And uh, Paul begins this chapter by saying, If you then be risen with Christ. And then proceeds to tell us what it looks like to be risen with Christ. We mentioned three things. Number one, resurrection people are kingdom-minded. 
Number two, resurrection people are dead. And number three, resurrection people are alive. To be kingdom-minded, we said, means that we align our wills with the will of God. He told us to seek those things which are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Set your affections or your heart, your motives, your desires, your dreams, your plans. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And then he says that, that because of that, we are dead. Dead to sin. Dead to the flesh. Dead to the world. And last week we talked about the fact that we've been called to mortify or to put to death those things that stand in the way of us living the resurrected life. We went over a few of those things. And Paul gives us a list of vices in this passage of Scripture. It's not an exhaustive list of all of our sins. I'm sure that we could add a few in there if we wanted to. That if I had a survey here today and asked you to commit your sins, some of you would be truthful, some of you would lie, and therefore you would have a sin. Right? It's not comfortable for us to mention the things that stand between us and God. It's not easy for us to focus our attention or to notice the things that keep us from growing in our spiritual lives. Our challenge from the beginning of this year was to grow. And the fact of the matter is, if we don't deal with the flesh, if we don't deal with the pull of the world, if we don't declare war on sin in our lives, we will never grow spiritually in the things of God. And Paul said that we're actually supposed to put these things off like clothing that no longer fits us. Um, those things that still pertain to the old life. Why? Because that life is dead. That life is dead. And if something is dead, then it should no longer have influence over your life. Am I right? So we are to take it off like clothing that no longer fits us. Logan, uh, Logan literally three months ago was wearing my shoes. Now he can't fit in them. He wears a size 11. It's like I have to, we have to buy him new shoes every three months. And when something doesn't fit, it's not comfortable any longer. Right? I'm not saying that we're sinless. I'm not saying that we don't give in to the pull of the world sometimes. But it should be uncomfortable for us. It should be uncomfortable for us. And if the scripture shines a light on places in our heart and places in our lives in which we need to take some stuff off, then we need to change clothes that we need to mortify and put to death, it's probably going to be uncomfortable. I know there's a lot of people who say, well, I didn't come to church to be made uncomfortable. <laughs> well, then you didn't want to hear truth, right? You didn't want to be convicted. You didn't want to be drawn by the... I want to be left alone. But God's love won't leave us alone. God's love will not leave you alone. And so finally, Paul points out to where all of this leads. If we are kingdom-minded, if we've put things to death, then it, resurrection people are eventually going to be alive. This is the message of the gospel, that through death there is life, that newness of life comes through Jesus Christ, that because of Jesus you get to start over, that because of Jesus he gets to bring you new life, new hope, new future, new mercies, new compassion. That if we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is who He says He is, and that He did what He said He did, we will have life through His name. John said in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. So church this morning, Jesus promises life, real life, true life, purposeful life, meaningful life, satisfying life, fulfilling life, eternal life. Everything good that comes with life. 
that is found in Jesus Christ. Now, we know that the meaning of life and what gives us meaning is something that has been discussed by philosophers and theologians and random Joes since the beginning of time, which also, hey, Joe, it's good to see you, Joe. We're glad you're here, buddy. We've been praying for Joe, and we're just thankful that God answers prayer. Amen. Thankful that God answers prayer and that he's here worshiping Jesus with us. Amen. So I'm not necessarily talking about that random Joe, but he is a random Joe. Right? So we talk about, the, you know, what is the meaning of life? I mean, it's something that we've probably all thought about. Maybe some of you, like, don't care, right? I just want to get through the day. But I'm sure it's something that's crossed our minds in life. You know, what, what is the meaning of life? What is valuable? What is, what is most important? What makes life meaningful and purposeful? It's something that we all want. We, we all want to have a life that has meaning, that has purpose. There's a story that says that on the first day God created the dog, and said, sit all day by the door of your house and bark at anyone who comes in or walks past. And for this, I'll give you a lifespan of 20 years. The dog said, well, that's a long time to be barking. How about you just give me 10 and I'll give you back the other 10? God said, okay. So on the second day, God creates the monkey. And he says, entertain people, do tricks, make them laugh. And for this, I'll give you a 20-year lifespan. The monkey said, monkey tricks for 20 years? That's a pretty long time to perform. How about I give you back 10 like the dog did? God said, I agree. On the third day, God created the cow and said, You go into the field with the farmer all day long and suffer under the sun, have calves, give milk to support the farmer's family, and for this I'll give you a lifespan of 60 years. The cow said, That's kind of a tough life, and you want me to live for 60 years? How about 20? And I'll give you back the other 40. So God agreed. So on the fourth day, God created humans and said, Eat, sleep, play, marry, and enjoy your life. For this, I'll give you 20 years. But the human said, Only 20 years? Could you possibly give me my 20, the 40 that the cow gave back, the 10 that the monkey gave back, and the 10 that the dog gave back? That makes 80 years, okay? Okay, said God. You asked for it. So that's why for the first 20 years, we eat, sleep, play, and enjoy ourselves. For the next 40 years, we slave in the sun to support our family. For the next 10 years, we do monkey tricks to entertain the grandchildren. And for the last 10 years, we sit on the front porch and bark at everyone. Right? Some of y'all are like, man, you've been to my house. Now you know the meaning of life. Life has been described to you. We all want purpose in life. We all want meaning in life. We all, we all, we're always looking for ways in which to make sure our lives are satisfied, that we enjoy life to the fullest. We want to make the most of life. You know, we don't, we, we, you know, we're adverse to pain. We're doing everything we possibly can to stay away from heartache and pain and anything that hurts or anything that's aggravating or anything that's hard, right? We, we're trying to find the easiest route that we can get through so that we don't have to face anything or do anything. We want to enjoy life. It's kind of like, I think I told you with Johnny one day, he was, he was like, I, I, don't, I don't want to go to school today. And, and mom said, why don't you want to go to school? And he said, well, it's, it's long, it's hard, and it's boring. And his mom looked at him and said, Johnny, that's the definition of life. Get on the bus. Sometimes it's long, sometimes it's hard, and sometimes it's boring. But what God promises through Jesus Christ is not only that we can have life, but he said you can have life that's more abundantly. Life that is abundant, that is overflowing, that has more than enough, 
In other words, Jesus was actually saying, I'm going to give you stuff and it's just going to overflow in your life and you don't even know what to do with it. Some of you guys are pack rats and you've got stuff that you know should not be stored in your house. But it's stored in your house. You know as well as I do, if somebody dropped a match, your house would go up like that. You've got so much kindling in the house. But God has given us more abundance that because we are created in the image of God, all of us have intrinsic value. The very fact that you're alive and breathing this morning means that you are valuable, that you are important, that you matter. That no matter where you come from or how much money you make or what the color of your skin is, how intelligent you are or how well-liked you are, because you are created in the image of God, you have intrinsic value. You belong. You are here because God designed it. You are not a mistake. And because of that, you have meaning and purpose. And that in following Jesus, we can find that true purpose. We can find that true meaning in life. And that when we leave this planet, we have eternal life with Him. This is the promise of following after Jesus. He didn't say it would be easy. In this world, you will have tribulation. He didn't say it would be easy. Paul said all that live righteous lives will suffer persecution. He did not say it would be easy. But what he did say is that it would be joyful, that it would be peaceful, that it would be full of his grace, full of his promises, full of his goodness, full of his strength, full of his help. Paul tells us that we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God. Then in other words, our life is locked in to Jesus, that the devil can't find us. The devil can't find us. Defeat can't find us. Hopelessness can't find us. Why? Because we're hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4 says that Christ is our life and soon he will appear. And obviously, Paul is talking about the second coming of Jesus, but he's also talking about the fact that in his presence, because we are created by him, And created as new people, in His presence, His glory rests upon us. And we experience that life. Folks, this is what it means to be resurrection people. That who we are and the true meaning and purpose of our lives is wrapped up in Jesus. We saw last week that this life begins with dying. And I need everybody to know that when Jesus calls you, He calls you to come and die. He calls you to come and die. And die. Die through repentance. Die through self-denial. Die through the taking up of our cross. Jesus calls us to the cross to die so that we might truly live. Because resurrection cannot be experienced unless we have been crucified. Unless we have come face to face with death. And any time that we repent, any time that God is working in us His sanctification, His purpose for our lives, there are certain things that start dying. How many of you will agree? When God convicts us, when God draws us by His presence, when we come to a place of repentance, we recognize that there's certain garments that we have to take off. There are certain attitudes that maybe we have to get rid of. There are certain sins that maybe we have to deal with. There are certain paths that we're taking that might need to be corrected when God convicts us and draws us by the power of His Spirit. Again, it's not always comfortable, but death never is. Somebody's at the front door back there. Uh, He left. Um, So we recognize that every time, any time, 
that we're going to allow God to work in our lives, something has to come off of us, right? What we have to recognize lots of times is that we might live victorious lives over certain areas, but as long as we're allowing other areas in our life to continually drag us down, then it will start defining us by our defeats instead of by our victories. And the fact of the matter is, many times, some of us are not victorious because there's stuff that's alive that should have been dead. we still got some stuff whispering in our ears that we shouldn't be allowing to whisper in our ears anymore. And so when we recognize how serious this situation is, when we recognize how serious it is that God has called us to a place of death so that we might experience life, then we know what true freedom is. The death is compared to taking off things that we wore like garments that identified us with the old life. But as resurrection people, we're called to put on or clothe ourselves with those things that identify us with the new life. Some of you guys have have bought Living Faith Church shirts. Faye's got one on. Um, Some of you, I see Tina's Tina's got one on. Dee's got a sweatshirt on back there. Ryan's sporting Connect. Nancy, you have one on? Oh, you got your cup. Okay. We wear wear shirts and sweatshirts, and what do they do? They they identify us. Oh, Natalie's got one on. I drink from the cup. That's right. Hallelujah. But you'll thirst again. Um, We wear these shirts, sweatshirts, T-shirts, whatever, to help us identify. Sarah's got one on. I see you back there, Sarah. Thanks. Here's the thing. Some of you, I'm glad you have the shirts. Some of you, maybe you shouldn't wear them. (laughs) I'm I'm not talking about anybody in here. Oh, wait a minute. How could I? Second row. You were getting ready to leave, weren't you? You were offended. <laughs> we recognize that there are times in our lives, you know, we identify ourselves with Christ. And the Bible tells us that we are Christians. We were first called Christians in Antioch, the Bible says in Acts chapter 11. And, and literally, it was, it was used as a derogatory term. They were referring to them as a bunch of little Christs running around. All these people who think they're Jesus, and so they're, they're running around. But what a, what a compliment! For somebody to look at your life and say, you look like Jesus. But when we identify with Christ, when our life is hidden with Christ in God, it's like we're wearing the t-shirt. It's like we're wearing the t-shirt. And we are identifying ourselves with a certain way of living. We are putting on certain garments, behaving in a certain way, acting in a certain way, living in a certain way. This is the new life that comes from Christ. And so Paul again gives us a list of what we should be clothing ourselves with as resurrection people. Now again, this list is not a way of making us more saved. You can't be more saved. There's nobody saveder than anybody else. There's nobody nobody that can get more saved than when you got saved. Right? Jesus rescues fully. Right? It's not if you repent to some extent, you'll be saved to some degree. That's not how it works. Right? There's no degrees of salvation. So either we're saved or we ain't. Right? Either we've been born again or we have not. And so 
this list is not to say, hey, do these things and you'll be Christian. Because that's not true. I mean, let's be honest. I've met people who are not saved that are nicer than Christians I know. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard waiters and waitresses at restaurants say that Sunday afternoons are the worst day of the week. Because you have Christians coming in demanding stuff. Bring me 17 drinks. Bring me an appetizer. Where's the salt and pepper? Bring me a pig's head on a platter. Here's your tip, a quarter and a track that says Jesus loves you. We should be the nicest, kindest, loving people. We'll get into that. Tip, for heaven's sake. If you can't tip, don't go eat. So this is not a list of making you more safe, nor is it a list to help me find favor with God. Right? We always have to remember, folks, it's not that Paul is saying, listen, I want you to look like this, and if you look like this, you'll be good little boys and girls and go to heaven. And that's not how it works. The reason why it's so hard to put this clothing on is because it has to start from the inside out. It has to start from the inside out. The point that Paul is making is, if you've been made new, then these are the clothes you're going to be wearing. If you've been made new, this is what it looks to be alive. Listen, nobody has to convince me to love my kids. I just love them. Now, I might want to kill them sometimes, but I love them. Right? You don't have to come along and tell me, hey, to be a good dad, number one, love your kids. Well, I'm already failing. Right? Because it's not something I should have to work up. That's the whole point. If we've got to work up the fruit of the Spirit, maybe we ain't got the Spirit. That's King James Appalachian style. (laughs) What Paul is telling us is there's certain clothes that shouldn't fit us anymore. We try to put them on and we're like, wait a minute, this don't feel right. This doesn't seem to fit like it used to. It doesn't fit my life. There are others that should fit us as we've experienced the new life in Christ. Paul tells us to put on, put on the new man. A new man that has been renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created us. The one who created life within us. That we are literally called to put on clothing to become like the one who called us to become like him. So what should the wardrobe of a resurrected person look like? And so he mentions some things here in this passage of scripture that we will look at. Verse 12. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy... Bowels of mercy obviously refers to, uh, another translation says tender mercies. It's referring to compassion, where we are compassionate toward those who are trapped in misery. Remember always that compassion is not just feeling sorry for someone or, having a, 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 or, or feeling sympathetic for somebody. Compassion means that we are driven to do something about it. That when it refers to bowels of mercy, it's literally talking about the insides. It's literally talking about our intestines, our guts. That when we are truly driven by this type of compassion that is motivated by new life, by the indwelling presence of the Spirit, 
our love and, and, and desire for other people is like our guts are being to- poured out. That kind of compassion, bowels of mercy, that we look for those who are in misery and we want to do what we can to alleviate their misery. He tells them not only bowels of mercy, but kindness. Kindness, the Greek word here, is the virtue of a person whose neighbor's good is as important to him as his own. When we show kindness, according to this passage of Scripture, we are as concerned about our neighbor's good as we are about our own. I I can talk about my neighbors now because they moved. Um, But I had some some neighbors. I think I may have told you they were were, uh, an Indian family from India. Uh, The the grandfather was the one who who started Sitar of India down on the east side, east end, so they all... Or downtown. So they all lived there. And I think I told you all the story about them cutting the tree down in the front yard. They had a tree cut down. And there was, I come home one day and there was like 11 of them in the tree. And one guy is literally in the fork of the tree with a chainsaw with no shirt on and barefooted. With a chainsaw in a tree. I'm like, you go for it, bruh. <laughs> I just kind of stood out there with my phone with 911 already put in there. But he didn't, like, he didn't like the big tree in his front yard, so he cut it down. And then he planted three smaller trees right by the fence line. So now when I go to cut grass, I'm fighting limbs and trees. And, and I'm thinking, you know what? I'd like to be mad at my neighbor. But the Bible tells me to be kind, whether I like it or not. So I remained kind. And I just tied their limbs back so that I could get around and cut my grass. But honestly, when God calls us to be kind, it means that we do desire to show goodness to those around us. That goes back to leaving a tip. Leave a tip, for heaven's sake. We should be the kindest people on planet Earth. We We should be the ones that when people come to us, they don't feel like they have to walk on eggshells because they know you're not going to bite their head off. Kindness. Uh, Kevin preached on brotherly kindness. And I'll never forget the line. He said, God, whether you like it or not, God has called you to be kind. What else does he say? Put on kindness. Put on humbleness of mind. Always remember, humility is the core of all other Christian virtues. Every other virtue that we have as the people of God must be rooted in humility. Because humility is what brings the grace of God. Right? Humility is how we receive God's grace. Pride causes God to resist us. But humility causes God to place His favor upon our lives. And without grace, we can't become anything that Christ has called us to become. Every core value of our life, every single virtue, every single fruit, every single spiritual behavior that we have called to walk in is rooted in this humility of mind, this humbleness of mind who does not see ourselves greater than what we are, that recognizes that who we are, what we are, and everything we have is a result of the grace and the goodness of God, that because of the cross and the resurrection, we are blessed and can't even help it. But that's all humility of mind. And you've got to understand, when Paul says this, it went totally and completely contrary to Greek culture at that time. Humbleness of mind showed weakness. 
Humbleness of mind showed that men were not being men. But God has called us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of his, of his grace and mercy. So that why? He might exalt us in due time. Put on humbleness of mind. You're not all that. Just need everybody to know. You're not all that. Put on meekness. Now, lots of times when we think of meekness, we, we denote or think about somebody who's quiet or, or even somebody who's a pushover. They're very meek, mild. They don't stir up anything. They don't do anything. They don't make any noise, right? And, and, and to some extent, meekness does seem to indicate that. There's a little bit of timidity typically when we talk about meekness. But the Greek word here for meekness is not referring to being quiet or a pushover. It actually indicates how we act towards people. It indicates that I will not coerce, manipulate, or dominate for my own ends, even if I have the power to do it. Even if I have the power to do it. The Greek word here for meekness can also be translated gentleness. So what Paul is saying is, is that gentleness is actually a sign of the new man. And I know, again, especially when we're talking to men. Men, we're all rough and gruff. I mean, I even tell our boys, we're men. We fight bears with one hand while eating a sandwich in the other one. Right? We want to teach our boys and our men to be tough, rough. You know, every time, maybe this is not very uh, Christian, but every, every morning when Avery gets out of the car, I tell him, first I tell him, I love you, buddy. Have a great day. Be blessed in Jesus' name. And then I tell him, be nice, be kind, but don't take anything from anybody. Right? But, I, I mean, I, I, I stand by that statement, right? I don't, I don't expect my kids to allow anybody to push them around without standing up for themselves, right? So I believe in, in teaching men to be men, to be strong, to quit you like men, Paul said in 1 Corinthians. I, I get it. But gentleness is not a sign of weakness. Gentleness is a sign of strength. Because, men, when you're rough and gruff and loud and yelling and screaming and showing your temper, it just means you've not have, you don't have any control. Gentleness, meekness is a reaction of a heart that's been submitted to the Lordship of Christ. I am not going to manipulate somebody, dominate somebody, or coerce somebody for my own ends, even when I have the power to do it. Long-suffering. He says to put on long-suffering. Obviously, the word long-suffering means suffering long, right? I will not become impatient, short, filled with resentment toward the weaknesses and sins of others. I will be long-suffering. Why? Because God's been long-suffering with me. God is not slack concerning His promise, right? God's not slack concerning His promise. He has given us mercy. He's given us grace. Why? Because He desires all men to come to repentance. He desires all men. He gives us long-suffering. He is suffering long with you. And so we should do the same for others. I'm not going to become impatient, short, or filled with resentment towards the weaknesses and sins of others. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another goes together. To forbear someone literally means to put up with them. Y'all have anybody in your life that you put up with? Don't point at anyone. Lena's hand shot up. Quick! She didn't point, though. We all have people in our lives that we put up with, right? But it's more than just putting up with each other. It means that we are holding back our natural reaction to other people's faults. 
That's what it means to forbear. Forbear means I'm going to give you room to make mistakes. I'm going to give you room to be human. I'm going to give you room to mess up. Because I've been there. I am there. And forbearance always leads to forgiveness, right? Forgiving one another. This is the natural result of forbearing one another. And in church, it even tells us how we're supposed to forgive. How? How are we supposed to forgive? Anybody know? It's in there. As Christ has forgiven us. Do you realize how deep that is? How powerful that is? How we must recognize that we are to forgive each other the same way that Christ forgave us deeply, commit completely, without strings attached. Unforgiveness, folks, is a prison. Everybody needs to know that. When we are unable to forgive someone, they're not the ones who's hurting. We are. When we can't let go of an unforgiving heart, when we can't let go of bitterness or grudges, those grudges haunt us. They trap us. They are a prison that holds us and keeps us from growing in the things of God. Forgiveness is what we do because that is what we have experienced. Many times the reason why Christians have a hard time forgiving others is because they have lost sight of the grace of God. When you live under condemnation all the time, that's what you portray to other people. When you live under guilt, then you spread guilt. But when you live under grace, you spread grace. When you live under condemnation, then you'll spread unforgiveness and grudges and condemnation and judgment to other people because you are going to give away what you have. But when you've experienced the forgiveness of God, the true, deep, life-changing forgiveness of God that says in spite of yourself that even though at one time we were all children of disobedience, we have now been made children of God and that forgiveness is easily extended to other people. And finally, he says, put on love. And Paul says, we put on love because this is what binds us all together as the people of God. This is what marks the real life of resurrection people. I've preached enough sermons on love that I'm sure that you understand that there is no other greater characteristic, no other greater uh, virtue, no other uh, greater ethical life that we can live than a life that is committed to loving other people as Christ has loved us. And the beauty of the gospel is that God calls us to this new life. It's new life, this one that has meaning and purpose, one that has true fulfillment and satisfaction. See, sin and the pull of the flesh lies to us and tells us that life is about hedonism. Hedonism is the philosophical uh, thinking that pleasure and the satisfaction of all of our basest desires is the highest good or the proper aim of all life. So live hedonistically. Live fulfilling. Don't let anything hold you back. Just throw caution to the wind and and live however you want to live. This is what our culture tells us. Our culture puts so much emphasis on the pursuit of our own personal satisfaction. We live as atomistic people, individualistic. I'm free. I can do my own thing. I'm not held down by anything. And because of that, that's why we see a breakdown in the institutions of our own country that holds us together. 
That's why we see an attack on marriage, an attack on the, the nuclear family. That's why we see an attack on the fact that, that, that people are literally saying that parents should not have the say over what their children learn. It's also why our world tells us that, that you will find the greatest satisfaction when you get disconnected from these traditionalistic things, these, these things that hold us down, that keep us trapped. Because you're an individual. You're free. But you know, the Bible actually tells us that true life is found in not only my connection to God, but my connection to other people. That, that the church is Christ's bride so that we are married to him in a relationship, a commitment, a faithfulness to him and none other. Till death do us part. And then we get to live forever with him. Amen. But not only are we his bride, but as a bride, we are connected to each other. That we are joints and we are bones and we are ligaments and we are tendons and we are the body of Christ. That our connection to him is what really brings us true victory, really brings us to sati- true satisfaction. Our purpose and meaning in life, whether you like it or not, is deeply connected to where you go to church and to the people you fellowship with. And the, the people you allow into your life. So as the world tells us, pursue your own gains. Go after your own satisfaction. Live your own lifestyle. Satisfy your own sexual proclivities. Go make money and who cares who you hurt on the way up. When the world tells us to chase that, it will always end empty. There is a way that seems right unto a man. But the end thereof are the ways of death. The call to follow Jesus is a call to live a resurrected life connected to Him, connected to His purpose, connected to each other. It's living. Living is Christ. Paul said, For me to live is Christ. That living is bringing glory to God. That true, joyful living is found in fulfilling His purpose for us. His calling for us. And this is what it means to be resurrection people. So as I close out this series, I I pray that we would all set our hearts to be kingdom-minded. Dead to sin. Dead to the flesh. Dead to the world. And alive as new people saved by grace. Alive as people who have put on the new man. Who has put on the grace of God. Who have put on His purpose for us. Let's prepare for Easter by living in the power of the resurrection. And living a life that is truly worth living. Everybody bow your heads with me here this morning. Father, how grateful we are that you have called us to life. That there is life in you. That there is hope in you. That there is purpose in you. We thank you, Lord, that you never fail us. You've never come short. Thank you, God, that even in our sin, even in our hopelessness, even in our despair, Jesus came. He came into this world to die for us, to set us free, and to give us life. Thank you that in spite of ourselves, in spite of our failures, in spite of our mistakes, God, you're for us and you love us. And so I pray, oh God, that you would awaken our hearts, that you would awaken our hearts to the reality of life, true life. Life that is found in you. Life that is fulfilled and satisfied by you. Life that is rooted in the cross 
and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I ask, Lord, that you would search every heart here today. Every heart that finds itself searching for meaning, searching for purpose. Every heart here today, God, that has found itself in misery or feels hopeless or or broken. That today would be a day that they find life for the first time and live out that resurrection life. Lord, release your grace, release your peace, release your joy. Call us to your cross. And may you be glorified as a result in Jesus' name.